I thought that by saying no and explaining my reasons, my employer would abandon his social suggestions. However, to my regret, in the following few weeks, he continued to ask me out on several occasions. He pressed me to justify my reasons for saying no to him. These incidents took place in his office or mine. They were in the form of private conversations, which not, would not have been overheard by anyone else. My working relationship became even more strained when Judge Thomas began to use work situations to discuss sex. On these occasions, he would call me into his office for reports on education issues and projects, or he might suggest that because of the time pressures of his schedule, we go to lunch to a government cafeteria. After a brief discussion of work, he would turn the conversation to a discussion of sexual matters. His conversations were very vivid. That was attorney Anita Hill, then a law professor at the University of Oklahoma, testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee on October 11, 1991. That morning, I was at the gym. I hadn't been following the hearings that would lead to the appointment of Clarence Thomas as an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court. But for over an hour, the gym came to a standstill. Men and women who were mostly strangers watched in silence as Hill was questioned, often brutally, by an all-male committee chaired by then-Senator Joseph Biden. Here's Hal Heflin, a senator from Alabama, questioning Professor Hill. I've got to determine what your motivation might be. Are you a scorned woman? The Thomas hearings were distressing long before Hill's lurid revelations failed to derail the nomination. Thomas, a conservative Catholic, had been nominated by President George H.W. Bush to replace Thurgood Marshall, a giant of the civil rights movement and the first black person to serve on the Supreme Court. The first building block of the conservative Supreme Court majority that we have today was being laid in that hearing. To those of us who had looked to the court for almost four decades to expand the constitutional freedoms of women, racial minorities, sexual minorities, the poor, and other disempowered groups, the nomination was a shock and an affront. Republicans foregrounded Thomas's ascent from Jim Crow-era pinpoint Georgia, while Democrats zeroed in on his natural law philosophy or the idea that all human rights had been conveyed from God through the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. As Harvard Law Professor Lawrence Tribe had written in the New York Times that summer, the last time a Supreme Court majority invoked natural rights theories, some 80 years ago, the court held that the Constitution protects such economic rights as the liberty of employers to conduct business free of health and safety regulations and minimum wage laws. And Tribe finished, unfortunately, he seems likely to help overturn Roe v. Wade. That, of course, turned out to be true, and the accusations levied by Hill, accusations that mirrored the experiences of so many women in the workplace, created a brief moment of hope that surely Hill would be believed, surely women would be believed, and Bush would have to withdraw the nomination of a conservative activist who could not be expected to rule dispassionately. How naive we were. Thomas's nomination was pushed through, as was Brett Kavanaugh's 27 years later, despite multiple credible accusations of sexual assault, most prominently by psychologist Christine Blasey Ford. And yet women keep fighting. 
One of the most popular television series of the Trump years was The Good Fight, in which a black feminist law firm took on the toughest issues that MAGA Republicans threw at Americans. And to the delight of many of us, in the final season, fictional attorney Diane Lockhart burst out about a man she had a crush on. I can talk to him about Verdi, Dante, and Dahlia Lithwick. Indeed, as conservatives push the expansion of rights backwards, Lithwick, a legal journalist at Slate and host of the podcast Amicus, got us through and offered us hope. Now, in Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America, this longtime Supreme Court reporter advises us to stop doing what she has done for almost 30 years, watching the Supreme Court, and pay attention to the women who not only helped defend us from Donald Trump, but understood how to fight our political institutions when they turn on us. Join me as we talk to Dahlia Lithwick in this episode of Why Now, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, a professor of history at the New School for Social Research and the author of the Political Junkie Substack. This is Episode 5, Verdi, Dante, and Dahlia Lithwick. Dahlia Lithwick, welcome to Why Now? Hi, Claire. Thank you for having me. So excited about your new book, Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. I want to start with something you say in the introduction, which is that the enduring lesson of the Trump years and beyond is that the law is a fragile arrangement of norms, suggestions, and rules. The book seems to argue that women function better in that kind of environment. Why is that? I mean, I, I think two things. One is I think women more so than men, and, and let's be super clear that I, this is going to be a conversation rooted in huge overgeneralizations and stereotypes that obviously are not true in all cases. But one of the things that I was really struck by very early on, even before Donald Trump ascended to the presidency, was that it was women who were lining up at speaking events and asking me in 2016, but why can't we force the Senate Judiciary to have a hearing on Merrick Garland? Isn't there a lawsuit we can file? And very early on, I felt as though this tension that you're pulling out between women who felt that the law was somehow fixed and immutable and that it was also settled for life, was, were really shocked very early on by the Trump years. And so whether it was the Muslim ban, whether it was family separation, whether it was President Trump building a wall uh, and commandeering money to do that in violation of what Congress had appropriated, it seemed to me that women were much quicker to say, but this, this should be unlawful. Why is this unlawful? And it helped me understand this tension that runs throughout the book, which is, I think maybe women more so than men had a sense that there was really robust architecture of rule of law and that it had served to make women fundamentally equal-ish, if not equal, that we had passed 
some line of no return where we were not going to slide back anymore. And so I think the tension that I was playing with, what is it like when you have rightly or wrongly come to believe, and this is particularly true of white women, that the law has served you in ways that are never going backwards and that will only unerringly lead to, you know, the arc of the moral universe bending in your favor and then realizing that a lot of that was not true. I think the other half of the contention in the book is that it was women who very quickly recognized that things that we thought were laws were just norms and fragile sort of operations of good faith. And they were the ones who worked in a whole bunch of different ways to try to bolster the rule of law using often like super creative, you know, wild theories, you know, Hail Mary, legal efforts to say, actually, the law can get us there. It just hasn't gotten us there yet. For probably 30 years, I have had this doubt in my mind that Roe v. Wade was going to protect us in the end. And in many ways, I've often seen it as a way of raising money for Democratic politicians. But I never trusted Roe v. Wade. And everybody always told me that was ridiculous. And sadly, I turned out to be right. And it seems like part of what you're talking about is a kind of myth that the Supreme Court was there to make life better and better. And we found out to our shock and dismay that that was not true. So how did this, how did this myth take hold? It's such a great question. I always tell people, you know, to read um, Adam Cohen's great book about the Supreme Court that came out uh, just a few years ago, because it's a really bracing reminder. And by the way, you know, Ian Milheiser has written about this. I mean, I think a lot of people who think about the court, Erwin Chemerinsky has also written about this in recent years. They all remind us that we have this mythology about the Warren Court as though it was ever thus. You know, that whatever that like brief seven seconds in which the Supreme Court was really interested in dignity and tolerance and pluralism and, you know, one person, one vote, all of these values that got enshrined for, you know, a little over a decade, that that's the Supreme Court. And we both want to tell ourselves a story about the Supreme Court for the like century and some before that, as though it was that, and also for the time after that, you know, once the Burger Court turns into, you know, what what I started covering in 1999, which is the Rehnquist Court, that is long over. And the court has almost always throughout history been this very conservative, very revanchist institution. Adam Cohen's book is so good on the sort of TikTok of how Nixon single-handedly made it his business <laughs> to unseat uh, justices that were not in his camp and to seat justices who were. He created the court that I started to cover. And still we were telling stories about, you know, puppy dogs and angel dust and it was all good. And, you know, in part, I think it's because we got a little rope-a-doped by the mythology of Brown v. Board and of Griswold versus Connecticut and Loving versus Virginia. You know, even at the high water mark of Obergefell, for instance, progressives were losing 90% of the time or, you know, at least not winning. And we were still telling a story about this super visionary, capacious minded Supreme Court. And so I think it's just, we got so enchanted 
with the fairy tale of Brown v. Board that we wanted to pretend that the court had been that before and been that after. We were talking about an aberrational few years in the history of a court that has always been fundamentally super, super conservative and super interested in you know disassembling uh, progressive ideology and values. We who cover the Supreme Court cover cases. We don't cover the institution qua institution. And so if you cover cases and you decide, like, these are the three cases this year, and it's going to be, you know, whatever year it was, whether it was Obergefell or whether it was, you know, Grutter, the case that had to do with affirmative action in higher education, not this year's case, or whether it was Whole Women's Health. If you only talk about four cases all year, and then those cases come out as a draw or a slight win for, for progressives. It's really easy to get lost in the myth that, oh, wait, actually, corporations have been winning all the time at the court, certainly since Citizens United. This is the work Sheldon Whitehouse has been doing. Oh, you know, religion has been winning all the time at the court, including last year, but we only covered two cases. And so I think if I could go back and do my 20 plus career year career again, Claire, I would say, who is covering the institution of the court? as opposed to four or five cases, including like the case of the swearing cheerleader two terms ago, that gets so much oxygen and actually signify nothing about the larger trends of the court. So I think we are both rope-a-doping ourselves with the story of, you know, the court is still a progressive institution or was until Dobbs, which is insane. And I also think that the press corps has just arranged to tell the story of the court through a handful of lawsuits that in no way signal, A, the trends of doctrine, and B, what the institution is doing outside of those cases. That's really important. And I think you say in the book that the court is somewhat hostile to being covered. They have not allowed technology in the courtroom until quite recently. We can now listen to some cases, but we can't actually have a video feed from the court. You note that most reporters who are actually in the Supreme Court are sitting in the back where they can't see or hear anything. You're not allowed to record in the court. Justices don't give interviews. So how might the court actually become friendly to being covered? Or is it not in the interests of the court to have journalists cover the institution? I mean, all of the questions you just asked, Claire, could easily be asked about the court's ethics rules, right? And we're right now in the midst of an absolute meltdown over the fact that the court simply doesn't apply the ethical rules to themselves. And by the same token, they don't apply any standards that you and I think about as the appropriate standards for, you know, uh, free and open access to the press or transparency with regard to your work. Uh, They do none of those things. And it's because they set their own rules. Because from the founding, there has been a notion that anything that you do to encroach on the court's complete, you know, unfettered power over its own everything somehow undermines the independence of the judicial branch. And so we have exceeded not just to what I think are just untenable rules about how you cover the court, right? The justices fly around the country, they give speeches. Sometimes the speeches are off the record. (laughs) You know, sometimes there's some stringer who is out in Colorado covering, they're the only person covering that speech. There's no recording. You ask for a, a copy of the speech. More often than not, you can't get it. 
These are public statements in public places by public figures. No other journalists would be denied access to that. And that, you know, all of that on top of the court's increasingly secretive shadow docket, right, where it's deciding in the last couple of weeks, you know, a raft of death penalty cases without explaining its reason. So I just think that there are so many ways that we have sort of simply acceded to the court having utter control over every component, not just of its docket, not just of its proceeding, but how it is covered, how we write and think about it. And as a consequence, I just think anything that undermines that is viewed as an attack on the judiciary. So we would really need to, and and I should note, you know, there are meaningful um, bills that would start to solve for some of the transparency problems, the judicial disclosures. You know, we're now learning about trips that justices were taking to people's vacation homes that were never disclosed. I mean, all of this is eminently fixable, I think. But I think it was just magical thinking about the court as an institution that's like a big daddy in the sky that wants what's best for us. And so we agree to everything, all of the terms that they set. One of the things that happens when you try to challenge that magical thinking is the immediate response is, oh, you're politicizing the court. When, as you're pointing out, the court is already political. I want to take us back to women. And of course, the legal profession was really hostile to women until quite recently. Law schools could keep women out. They could have a quota for women until I think 1972 when that was challenged and overturned, actually, I think by the Supreme Court. But there is one woman who you begin with who believes so passionately in the law that she's basically willing to throw herself on the hand grenade of Donald Trump, and that's Sally Yates. And so many people failed to say no to Donald Trump, but Sally Yates did. Can you tell us her story and why she put herself in harm's way when she was really just in a caretaker position for the Department of Justice? Yeah. And I, you know, I started quite deliberately with Sally Yates, partly because I think we had all heard of her and I wanted to start with somebody who was familiar, but partly to make the point you just ended on, which is why didn't we see a hundred more Sally Yates? Like, why is it that so few people uh, in positions of authority in the Trump administration just publicly and vocally said, I'm not quitting. I'm just not doing this thing you're asking me to do. And if you don't like it, fire me. Uh, So Sally Yates was the acting attorney general when Trump was inaugurated. This is typically, you know, just a role where you are the acting official until the new person has had their hearings and are confirmed. And there's nothing suspect or weird about that. You know, it is, it's the president's prerogative. Um, all of his cabinet serves at his pleasure. So it, it's nothing surprising there. What is kind of surprising is that what she thought was going to be this boring little transition, where I think she described the hope of just lots of long, boozy lunches, immediately is confounded because she's hit with a travel ban within a few days, which is not vetted by anyone at DOJ. She finds out the way the rest of us found out about the Muslim ban uh, on her phone uh, in, in her car. And one of the things that she agonized about was this very question of, do I just quit? Do I enforce the travel ban? Do I send out my lawyers at the Department of Justice into courtrooms around the country and defend it and say it's lawful? Or do I say, I'm not going to enforce this, and I'm publicly saying I'm not going to enforce this, I'm giving my reasons. And if you want to fire me, 
uh, you fire me. And she ultimately, after uh, kind of workshopping it with her team at the Justice Department, opted for that door number three. And I sort of hold her out as an avatar of a bunch of things. One is she is a third generation lawyer. She's a lifer at DOJ, right? She's been there for a long time. She is, as I said, I think in the book, this almost Frank Capra character. She talks so righteously about the Justice Department and the law and the rule of law. You almost like can't believe anyone is that in the tank for DOJ. She's white. She's incredibly privileged and she knows that. And I wanted to start in some ways, the book ends, you know, with with Stacey Abrams. And I wanted to have that contrast of these two Georgia lawyers and, and different relationships to power and law. But I also, as you said, really wanted to spin the story of how easy it would have been for everybody to just say no, and how few of them did. You know, over the the, the four years of the administration, time after time after time, you know, people are fired when they're sitting on the toilet. People are fired and they slink off into the night. You know, people like Bill Barr, the most recent attorney general who both simultaneously claim that Trump could be indicted for January 6th and also that he'd vote for him again. I mean, the just level of total lack of integrity. And then the people who just are like, well, I'm just going to write a book and profit off this. Having done nothing in a formal sense, I'm going to slink off and get a big book advance or, you know, get a gig on, on Fox. And so I wanted to maybe use Sally Yates, not just as an emblem of, you know, a powerful woman lawyer who did the right thing, that's part of it, but as as an emblem of how easy it would have been for dozens and dozens of others to do the same thing and how few of them did. Yates does it, of course, because she believes so profoundly in the law. I mean, it's practically a religion for her. And then you flip to Becca Heller, the founder of the International Refugee Assistance Project, who kind of believes in the law, but believes in it as a tool rather than something that that really promotes a whole ideology about order. And it was Becca Heller who was ready on January 5th, 2021, when Donald Trump banned the travel of Muslims to the United States. But Heller wasn't a romantic, and she activated this whole network of lawyers. And I remember it at the time as being incredibly exciting, because I was in New York, and JFK was one of the hotspots. So how does Becca Heller offer a contrast to Sally Yates, or does she complement her? No, I, I deliberately wanted to posit Becca as the most unsally Yatesian person I could find. You know, she's somebody who just right in the middle of her chapter straight up says, Yeah, law is bullshit. You know, I'm using the master's tools to take apart the master's house. I don't have any idealized notions, but at least it's a thing I'm super good at and I can do. And, you know, I love the contrast between the two because Yates is so aspirational and as I said, so deeply committed to the proposition that the rule of law makes us free. And Becca Heller, you know, who's much younger, who's very brash, who sort of swears her way through her chapter and is very, very instrumentalist about how she, as you said, is just using this as a tool because, you know, she doesn't have another set of tools. Uh, So I I love that contrast. And I love that, you know, both of those are approaches to the travel ban, right? They're both reacting in some sense to the same law. And, you know, Yates at her high perch at DOJ is saying, I'm not sending lawyers out. And Becca's the opposite. Becca's like, I'm just going to send a bunch of tax attorneys and divorce lawyers who I am getting to sign up on a Google Doc 
out to the airports. They have no expertise in immigration law. What they have is like a membership in a state bar. And I'm sending them out to lawyers holding up signs in like Pushtu and Arabic saying, do you need a lawyer? I am here to help you. They don't know anything, but they're a lawyer and they can help folks. There's no lofty speeches in Becca Heller's chapter about how the law ultimately sets us all free or makes us, you know, a, a better polity. She's just like, lawyers can do wizardy things. And we know, and this is why IRAP was founded, if you have a lawyer, you're exponentially more likely to prevail as a refugee. And so she just was like, I'm just going to find lawyers and I'm going to send them out to the airports and they're going to stand there at bag baggage claim. And all of these poor people who some of whom, you know, helped as translators, as fixers, you know, in, in Afghanistan and Iraq, some of them sold all of their possessions in order to come lawfully with visas to the United States. Some of them were in danger were they to be returned home. And that's not fair. And so I'm going to get him a lawyer. I wanted, I think, readers to be able to see a little bit of themselves in one or the other of these characters. So that nobody had the sense that we're all Sally Yates or we're all Becca Heller. Never did I regret my decision not to go to law school more than at that moment, because it was clear to me in that first year that being a lawyer was the only thing that was going to matter for the next four years and being able to act in relation to people who were being harmed by the administration. I think I, I would push back in one way only, which is, you know, I don't want to undersell the Women's March. I don't want to undersell the women who went to the Capitol and got themselves arrested when Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed. I think that there is so much power in activism. You know, Rebecca Tracer has written so powerfully about movements and uh, protests. But I do want to say, when I look at what's happening on the streets in Iran right now, where women are being literally risking their lives because they're not lawyers, right? They're not judges. They're not elected officials. They are under the thumb of, you know, a theocratic male instrument of violence. And I think what I wanted to do was say, we've paid so much attention to movements, to protests, to the women's marches. I mean, I, you know, as well as I, I was marching every other weekend uh, in New York, and it's not trivial to show up and assert power and to strongly say we object to this. But I wanted to say there's another valence here. There's a layer. There's a lever that, as you're saying, is really access to power that a lot of women in a lot of countries do not have. And that it's not that lawyers were the only ones getting things done, but they were, holy hell, they were getting things done. And that we should really be grateful that that channel has not been cut off, that women, as you said, who weren't allowed into law schools only a few generations ago, who were not allowed to practice law, who couldn't be, be admitted to the bar, that lever is available and that it really massively compounds how effective you can be. You're quite right. You know, in some ways, that chapter about lawyers showing up at the airports has a little bit of wistfulness, too, because that should have continued. 
How are you positioned as a journalist to see the law differently than a practicing attorney would? And second, the law as an institution failed you both in relation to Charlottesville and Judge Brett Kavanaugh's appointment to the Supreme Court. Can you talk about being failed by the institution? Yeah, I mean, I think in some sense, the whole book is, I always say that the subtitle, Claire, should have been Welcome to My Breakdown, because the whole book is a portrayal meditation on me as somebody who, you know, graduated law school in the mid 90s, as he said, you know, clerks of the chief judge of the Ninth Circuit. I mean, I really was emblematic of that thing I described at the beginning, which is, wow, you know, yes, the law has some blind spots. It's not great at some things. It's got a long way to go in some ways. But by and large, it's really, really operating for us. And as you said, I think, you know, if I were a black woman in Tennessee trying to get an abortion, I would not have had that over. And so in some ways, it's not that the law failed me. It's more that I think I and a lot of people looked around and said, wow, the law is not just deeply limited. It's also, in some sense, doing exactly what it's designed to do, which is keep certain people down and certain minority voices empowered. And so, you know, Charlottesville is a good example of, you know, I lived in Charlottesville for almost 20 years. I raised my kids there. And when Nazis and white supremacists and Klansmen marched in the streets in August of 2017, it was utterly surprising that, you know, the police weren't ready. The National Guard wasn't ready. Nobody showed up. You know, this turned into violence. It turned into death for Heather Heyer. It turned into horrific injuries for a whole bunch of students and protesters. And you couldn't shake the feeling, the same feeling you had on January 6th after the election of 2021, that if these protesters had been people of color, you know, these white supremacists and Nazis, uh, they would have been shot dead on the spot. And that you can't look at that in contrast with Black Lives Matter protests and not see how institutionally the law continues to fail vulnerable communities and continues to privilege white men. So that was one example of it. And because in some sense, Jeff Sessions' Justice Department didn't see fit to investigate and prosecute as a hate crime, which it was, it left a huge space for, you know, and I write a chapter about Robbie Kaplan and Karen Dunn, who come in and bring an action under the KKK Act. So it's at the highest and the lowest levels that the law fails to show up for people in Charlottesville in in what really was an invasion by outsiders who wanted to take over a town and purportedly protest in favor of civil war statues, but actually were bringing flagpoles and, you know, guns and weapons of war to do so. And then again, again, I think, you know, I had covered multiple confirmation hearings I never believed that the hearings were, you know, had the force of law, but I certainly thought they were some kind of process, even if just the performance of process. And I think the thing I learned from sitting through the Brett Kavanaugh hearings was the same thing, which is it was a performance. It was not just that, you know, truth was not ferreted out, that there were no findings of fact, that, you know, the White House tip line for people who wanted to talk about their own uh, reporting on on what they knew of Brett Kavanaugh, apparently what went into a garbage chute dumpster, nobody answered them. But that it actually wrapped itself in the patina of being a kind of quasi-legal event that, you know, oh, we have witness testimony, they're swearing in, they're taking oaths, they're being investigated, you know, 
people are asking hard questions. And so it repurposed the law as though it was a thing that was, you know, ultimately going to end up with truth and findings of fact, where in fact, it existed to distort that. And so that also was, you know, and I think that in uh, Anita Hill, when I talked to her in her chapter, sort of points out the only thing worse than having no law is having the imprimatur of the law on something that is utterly lawless. Yes. And, and of course, Anita Hill was the first experience of what we would later see in Kavanaugh. But, and I think you and I have had this conversation, your story about Alex Kaczynski being accused of utterly improper behavior in relation to his clerks made me understand how the Anita Hill case could happen at all, that there is this kind of pervasive rot in the judiciary and that there is no mechanism to address it. Right. And that this was all, I mean, the Kaczynski stuff that was all reported, Judge Kaczynski was the chief judge of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Decades of open secrets, as I say, where people reported, you know, him showing porn, that he had a newsletter that went out to, to many, many people with wildly inappropriate and pornographic material, the abuse of clerks, all of this went on for decades and nobody did anything about it. And nobody did anything about it, as you say because he was the launch pad to a clerkship with Anthony Kennedy and other Supreme Court justices. And there was just a culture of you suck it up and you take it because then you get a Supreme Court clerkship and then you get this massive signing bonus and then you get to be a DC insider. And it's worth saying almost every justice on the current Supreme Court clerked on the Supreme Court, right? This is the pathway. And that there is, as you say, this is the judiciary. This is the Article Three federal judiciary, lifetime appointments cannot be removed unless for, you know, high crimes and misdemeanors, and they have no ability to police themselves and no interest uh, by and large in policing themselves. And since the chapter where I describe a whole bunch of women, one after another coming forward, at terrific peril to their own careers, their academic careers, their careers as litigators, to say, yeah, this happened to me too, this happened to me as well, also happened to me, Judge Kaczynski stepped down. So there was no investigation. It scuppered the investigation that would have happened. So there's still been no findings of fact. I should note parenthetically, just reported last week that Judge Kaczynski is now working on Donald Trump's legal team and filed uh, a pleading in one case comparing Donald Trump to Galileo, a great historic visionary who was misunderstood because Donald Trump may or may not have been right, both about Joe Biden's stealing the 2020 election and COVID. So this is great. I mean, what happens when there's no consequences is the behaviors persist and amplify or move to different fora. And maybe just the very last thing I'll say about that chapter is that I didn't write that chapter as a me too. I wrote it as a meditation, as you said, on the complicity and secrecy of the legal profession that is supposed to be doing this one central thing, which is investigating facts and making conclusions of law. And if the judiciary cannot do those things, one wonders what it is that they are doing on the bench all day. A whole bunch of efforts have been made by different um, judicial circuits. There's been improvements in some contexts on how you report and how, you know, what you do if you've been in an abusive situation. But it's staggering to me in much the same way that so much of Me Too has been staggering, in that unless you create meaningful, binding legal processes, all you're doing is, and this goes to the Anita Hill point, 
putting the patina of, oh, now there's a legal process over something that is fundamentally not a legal process. Yeah. And I want to encourage listeners to read all of Dahlia Lithwick's book, uh, Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America, because I'm going to turn her away from it right now, and I'm going to bring her right into the present, which is the Supreme Court leak story, the second Supreme Court leak story we have heard in the last year. The first was in relation to Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Clinic, and this one is in relation to Hobby Lobby. Dahlia, what's going on? Uh, This is just a fabulous piece of reporting that the New York Times put out, suggesting that with a a fairly unreliable witness, I guess we should say, you know, somebody who for decades did anti-abortion activism that has since changed his view, but with pretty credible contemporaneous reporting that he knew in 2014 before Hobby Lobby came down, and that was the case challenging the contraception mandate in Obamacare for uh, religiously owned businesses that did secular things, but saying that it violated their religious liberty to be forced to provide contraception per the Affordable Care Act. And that uh, it turns out, uh, at least according to this one witness, he knew before the decision came down, both that it would be a 5-4 decision, that Samuel Alito would be writing it, And he knew that because he had cultivated, and this is the shocking part of the story, isn't just the leak, this huge influence campaign at the Supreme Court, where people principally animated by religious liberty claims were donating money to the Supreme Court Historical Society, getting access to justices, sitting in the seats held by Justices Scalia and Thomas and Alito at oral arguments, going to their homes for dinner, flying them out to their resorts, you know, lovely, chummy lunches and dinners and conversations. Uh, You know, Justice Alito saying to them, oh, you should go see this woman is giving a lecture. These are your issues. All of this is happening in a very concerted way in order to bolster the justices so that they will do the right things on a religious liberty cases. And lo and behold, Justice Alito mentions at a dinner, at a dinner, a private dinner with two of these donors, that this is how Hobby Lobby is coming down. And so I think that the story isn't simply that Justice Alito has loose lips. I think the story is, holy cow, there was an entity that deliberately built an office and staffed it across the street from the Supreme Court went in and prayed with justices, went in and lobbied uh, justices, had untold influence, and none of this was captured in the Supreme Court ethics rules. Because, as we said at the beginning, there are no ethics rules. And it's really shocking because, you know, I know that uh, defenders of Justice Alito and the court's conservatives are now saying like, oh, this happens all the time. You know, justices are just people. They They tell their friends the outcomes of cases all the time. But I can tell you with some confidence, I have covered the court for 22 years. Justices don't go around telling people in advance of a decision what the vote is going to be or who's authoring. And if they did, we should know that. And because it's the Supreme Court, I don't think there will be an investigation. I don't think there will be any outcome here. And it's worth noting, just to connect it up to the leak, this all happens because this same a uh, person who disclosed this to the New York Times 
tried to tell John Roberts about this when the leak happened and never heard back. Well, so we're over time and I shouldn't be asking you an extra question, but I'm going to because it's about another investigation that hasn't happened and probably isn't going to happen. And the two words I have for you are Ginny Thomas. What do you do about Ginny, particularly since conservatives have chosen to use feminist arguments to defend her, i.e. she has her own life, she has her own career, she's not beholden to her husband's position? What do you do about Ginny Thomas? To take seriously the feminist argument for one nanosecond, I will say this. It is certainly the case that the judicial rules used to be absolutely contemptuous of judicial spouses, at that time wives, uh, and the fact that they might have their own lives or careers, right? And so this has been going on for decades now that justices and judges, by the way, who marry people who are active in other arenas, uh, were told that they had to get their women under control, which was appalling. And that took a long time. And the judicial ethics rules have been rewritten to reflect that actually your wife is not, in fact, your property. And you uh, have to figure out how to manage your two uh, concurrent careers so that she's not being told that she has to go home and knit, which is what judicial wives did for most of history, right? So I want to take seriously the claim that this was, for most of history, rooted in hugely sexist ideas about uh, judicial spouses. But then I want to pivot and say it seems to me the single most sexist argument in the world has to be that. Uh, Ginny Thomas, somehow, who is, you know, amassing money from donors, who is bringing people to the court, who is calling former clerks of Clarence Thomas and telling them as election officials to set aside the 2020 election, all of that is happening because of her relationship to her husband. She would have none of this access were it not for her marriage. So the idea that that's like the high watermark for feminism is bonkers, right? And so I just want to say how limited the notion of feminism is when it's like, sure, she's entitled to all the privileges of her husband's lifetime tenure and all the ways in which that gives her access and allows her, you know, to collect money from, you know, donors in order to affect outcomes at the court. And that's the nature of her power. Isn't the point here that she's supposed to have a separate and independent career, not one that is entirely a function of, you know, her husband's role. So I don't get where that is, in fact, feminism. It's no definition of feminism that I understand. You know, under the the question is the bigger question, which is what do you do? And here's where I kind of go back to my answer about covering the courts, which is as long as we cover cases and we say, oh, look, here's the affirmative action case. Here's the Indian Child Welfare Act case you know, oh, we're about to do the independent state legislature case and refuse to cover the court as an institution, a political institution, Ginny Thomas doesn't get covered. She gets covered in a series of sort of peripatetic leaks about, oh, it seems kind of bad that she was arranging buses for January 6th. I guess it was kind of bad that she was texting Mark Meadows. Probably not super great uh, that she was at the rally that morning. And then it stopped. And so I think I would just say, unless we take seriously the court as an institution and instrumentality of power, I would say more power than the other institutions. But I think that the time to start thinking about those questions is probably not now. 
it was probably five, 10 years ago. And so I would just urge listeners to take very seriously, you know, Sheldon Whitehouse has been doing this. Um, a lot of great journalists, including Josh Gerstein at Politico, have been doing this. You know, uh, Ian Milheiser, Ellie Mistel, Linda Greenhouse just wrote a tremendous piece in The Atlantic talking about the court as an institution. And I think we have to, again, stop covering it as this like magical, quasi-religious, you know, church in the sky that is looking out for everyone's best interest and best doesn't get covered seriously because that's how you get Jimmy Thomas. So, Dahlia, you've managed to write about a lot of depressing things without writing a depressing book. And I want to just conclude this segment by asking you why listeners should read your book now. I mean, they should read it because it took me four years to write it and I'm super tired. So like just the sheer exhaustion. Uh, but I do think, you know, and, and anybody who's been listening to Amicus or reading my writing over the last couple of years or talking to me the way you have, Claire, you know, is is well aware that I've been, you know, in a, in a doom spiral for some time about democracy. That, you know, that initial framing question you asked about trust in institutions is one that has been so central to my thinking about the law and the rule of law as I watched people give up on institutions, whether it's the institution of the court, the institution of government, the institution of voting itself, right? It's just easy to say, this all sucks and I'm going to just Netflix until I fall down. So what I wanted to write in the book and what I think actually was really lifted up by the midterm is that if you trust in institutions, by and large, they show up for you. And the book is a lengthy meditation on a bunch of women who had every ability to say, this is too hard. There's no law. You know, I've got the entire power of, you know, the Jeff Sessions Justice Department working against me. I'm thinking of Bridget Amiri at the ACLU, you know, trying to bring a, a lawsuit on behalf of migrant pregnant teens. Every one of these people had the ability to say the law is broken. Every one of them said in some version or others, you know, instrumentalist or idealistic, I can fix this and I can go file a lawsuit or I can organize or I can amass power, you know, through uh, coalitions. But every one of them just said, no, I'm not giving up because as Anita Hill says in the book, the alternative to the rule of law is chaos. And that never redounds to the benefit of women in vulnerable populations. And so I wrote a book that actually I feel like was borne out in some sense by the midterms, which is in the face of Dobbs, in the face of the temptation to just be helpless and hopeless and say, we lost the court, you know, it's over. Women showed up and in every state where abortion was on the ballot, all five abortion wins. And in states like Michigan and Pennsylvania, up and down the ticket abortion wins. And in states like Kentucky, even when women are voting for, you know, ruby red candidates, abortion wins. And so I think the book married to what we saw. This is, I think, my roundabout way of saying this would have been a much more depressing book if the midterms hadn't been a triumph, not just of women and organizing and young people and hope and confidence that your vote matters. I would have been very depressed to be here having this conversation if none of that had been made manifest. But I also think it's really a book that is a blueprint for how we haven't even yet begun to try in the face of 
catastrophic losses at the Supreme Court, catastrophic losses of confidence in, uh, you know, Donald Trump's judges, that if you try, you win, you win a lot, and that we have access, anyone who has access to a blue book and a yellow pad and the ability to file a lawsuit has immense power. And we saw that in the midterms. I think we're going to continue to see it. But the thing you cannot do is go numb. We all, at the end of the day, have to be Sally Yates. We have to be Becca Heller. We have to be Ravi Kaplan. We have to be Nina Perales and say, the law is so profoundly imperfect. I get it now. But we can work together to make it better. And I think that this book is a kind of a creed occur from me who really was on the theme of giving up it so many times over the last couple of years, that when you don't give up, the people who didn't give up are the reason that, you know, we're still here and still fighting and still winning, but also unbeknownst to us, they were holding up the sky. And that's it for today's show. You can go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes and to listen to more episodes, leave a comment, or ask a question. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, which gets you one newsletter a week that may or may not include a podcast. Or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. You can also participate in subscriber chats. You can subscribe to Why Now on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Please share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. Show notes, technical assistance, and research are by Emma Kern. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. You can find both of these terrific artists on soundstripe.com. That's all for now. I'll see you next time.